Let's get into a quick background of Luke, and then I want us to dive right in. So based on Colossians 4.14, we know that Luke was a physician. We often hear him called Dr. Luke. Um, he's also a, a historian. If you look at the very beginning of Luke 1, you'll see even in the second verse, he says, I'm writing from an eyewitness account. Then he goes ahead in verses 3 and 4, and he lays out his credentials as a historian. He says this, Having, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you were taught. So Luke wants to reassure his readers that the things that are being recorded in these gospels pertaining to the, the life and the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus are in fact 100% true. There were eyewitnesses, including Luke himself and the account that he's given so that we might have certainty that it's not just some fabricated fairy tale made up by man. Luke addresses this gospel, as you saw, to most excellent Theophilus. Anybody read the book of Acts? If, if you've read the book of Acts, you see that he also writes the book of Acts to Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus. Now, Nobody really knows for sure who this Theophilus character is. However, we also see in the book of Acts that Paul refers to some Roman governors, Felix and Festus, with a similar greeting. So based on this connection, we, we can assume that this dude Theophilus was a man of social standing and of wealth. However, let's not get so caught up with who this Theophilus guy is that we miss Luke's broader aim. You see, Luke's aim in penning his gospel is to reach not just the Jewish man, but specifically the Gentile Christian who had been taught about Jesus. And he, here's what I found interesting. As I really studied and broke down the name Theophilus, here's what it means. Gentile, beloved by God, friend of God. So as we read the gospel of Luke and study through it, realize this, he's writing to you, he's writing to me. We are Theophilus, we are a Gentile who was once separated and cut off from God. We were hostile to him, but through the shed blood of Jesus, we've been brought near and now he calls us beloved, he calls us friend, we are Theophilus. Each of the four gospels present Jesus through a unique lens. I don't know if you've studied each gospel separately, but in Jesus, or I'm sorry, not in Jesus, in Matthew, Jesus is presented as king. In Mark, Jesus is presented as the suffering servant, while in John, he portrays Jesus as deity. However, Luke writes to reveal Jesus specifically as savior. Okay, I don't, I don't want you to miss this. Even in Matthew's genealogy versus Luke's genealogy, you'll see in Matthew, he starts at Abraham. He works, his all, he works his way all the way through King David and then leads all the way down the line to Jesus to highlight Jesus's kingship. However, in the gospel of Luke, the only other genealogy we find, he starts strategically at Jesus. He works his way all the way back through Abraham to Adam. Why? Well, I think he does this strategically to highlight Jesus as the savior of all humanity. So Luke really just lays out the life of Jesus as a sequential journey to the cross where Jesus would accomplish his ultimate goal. I believe if we could sum up the gospel of Luke in one verse, it would be Luke 19.10, where Jesus Christ himself looks a good-for-nothing, no-name tax collector named Zacchaeus, and he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So 
With that in context, let's go ahead and jump into our first study this morning. As we begin today, I want us to begin at the very beginning where Jesus' ministry really began. So the message that I've called this today is not another church service. Not another church service. This week, I don't know if y'all remember, but we had our uh, basketball camp. We had over 70 kids, the majority of whom were not even from our church. They were from the outside. A lot of them have not been brought up in church. And what a phenomenal camp we had. We're thankful for our brother Antonio and for him helping us make this thing happen. But, uh, man, it, it was a lot more than just teaching them about basketball. We had an opportunity to share testimonies, to share the gospel each day. And, uh, I mean, to see some of the responses was absolutely phenomenal. We had at least 23 kids who raised their hands to begin a relationship with Jesus. We don't know how many hearts were actually impacted in that week, but we, we, we know that, that God did an incredible work throughout our week. And the day after I got to share my testimony, it was uh, the Thursday, it was the last day of the camp, and these two little girls came up to me, and they told me that as I was sharing the day before, that uh, they began to tear up, and they began to cry. And they said, what does it really mean to surrender your life to Jesus? These girls were eight and nine years old. I was blown away to hear these little girls asking me these questions. So we, we talked for about 10 minutes, and I, I tried to answer their questions. And they, they said, well, I don't know what happened to me yesterday, but when you finished speaking and you prayed, when I went home yesterday, I felt brand new. I'm like, that's an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old. <laughs> So God is bigger than we have yet seen. However, it was funny because uh, we were going through the motions of two-line layups. If, if you've ever grown up and played any basketball, man, you warm up with two-line layups where you got to run on a, a line on the right hand and on the left hand, and you go in on one side for the layup, and then the other line rebounds, and you throw it back. And I'm not going to lie, I had a lot of fun doing two-line layups with 10-year-olds. <laughs> now, I, I grew up, man playing a lot of basketball in Indiana. So I've literally done thousands and thousands of two-line layups and to the point where it kind of lost the excitement. But something about going back after all these years and starting fresh and seeing it from a different lens, man, it was exciting. You know, I also enjoyed beating up on 10-year-olds all week. So <laughs> please, please pray for me. But here's, here's kind of the point I want to make this morning as we get into it. Have you ever gone through the motions with something for so long that you forget why you're going through the motions? See, for so many of us, especially in the South, you've been going through the motions for so long that you've forgotten why. Think about it. You show up on Sundays. You go through the routine. We sing three, maybe four songs. Some of you are still wondering why people raise their hand and make funny faces during worship. Then whoever will get up here and share for hopefully no more than 30 minutes, and then somebody else will come up and ask you for your money, then off you can go to do life for the next six days, right? You know, to be honest, I don't know that we're all a people of faith, but certainly I think it's safe to say that we are a people of church. For many of you, being a Christian is nothing more than a comfortable routine. So as I prayed before, my goal, my heart, my prayer this morning is that the common would once again become uncommon, that you and I would see and experience Jesus like never before for who he is, not for who we've made him to be. 
You see, however big you've allowed Jesus to be up to this point in your life, he's still infinitely bigger. So with that in mind, let's dive into it. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4. At this point, Jesus has been baptized and he's sent out into the wilderness. It says, by the spirit for 40 days, he wrestles with Satan himself and he doesn't eat. I don't know about you, but if I go 40 minutes without eating, I'm not walking in the power of the spirit anymore. But it says Jesus returns to Galilee and the power of the spirit. And there his fame spreads throughout the region. But then suddenly Luke abruptly, abruptly kind of shifts gears and he takes us to Nazareth. So to me, it's interesting that Jesus' journey to Calvary starts in his hometown of Nazareth. No, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus shows up. It's important that we recognize that because after the Babylonian exile, the significance of the Sabbath day had really been blurred in Israel. See, the, the Pharisees of that day, the religious elite had begun to impose these impossible demands on the people that only really the religious elite could keep and could meet because somehow it gave them a sense of status and control while reassuring their followers that they were on the right track. So the Sabbath day, which was intended to be a a day to celebrate God's creation and to remember God's faithfulness and his covenant love had become nothing more than a day of legalism. (laughs) So at best, it was just another church service. They were going through the same motions week in, week out, probably sitting in the same seat. They almost certainly recited the Shema, which was a liturgical prayer found in Deuteronomy and Numbers. Someone would have come up and read from the Torah, which was the first five books of Moses, followed by somebody coming up and reading from the prophets. However, this day they had a special guest speaker who would stand up and read from the prophets. So no other than Jesus of Nazareth, it says, as was his custom, he stands up, they hand him the scroll. Now don't miss this. In this very moment, the finger of God strategically unrolls the scroll and as the scripture says, finds the place. <laughs> the, the, the place where the prophetic words of the prophet Isaiah had been penned some 700 years before are about to be fulfilled by Jesus Christ himself. The common, don't miss this, the common is about to turn very uncommon. And this is what Jesus Christ reads. It's from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. He says in Luke 4, 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I don't know about you, but these are very reassuring words to someone with my kind of past. Someone who was blinded to God because of my own pride, because of my own spiteful rejection of him. Someone who was a slave, a captive to my sin. I recognize that only a Messiah of Isaiah 61 has the power to set the captive free. So this is reassuring to read these words of Jesus. However, here's what I want us to focus on specifically this morning. When Jesus says that the spirit of the Lord is on me for the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He uses the Greek word where we get our equivalent to evangelize. 
Now, this is interesting because the meaning of evangelize is not just to preach a message, but Jesus preaches specifically a message to bring it from the head to the heart. Now, to whom would Jesus preach this message? To those who perfectly obey the law? Those who never miss a church service? Those who don't drink and don't cuss and certainly don't get tattoos? No, he says, to the poor. He's not talking about a homeless person in downtown Atlanta. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. He's talking about the completely destitute, the utterly helpless, the poor in spirit. Don't don't miss this. You see, if we don't recognize our condition, then we will reject the diagnosis. Don't miss it, though. In this mission statement Jesus makes, the paralyzing power of sin is unhinged, and you and I, the fallen, have an opportunity to get back up. However, the spiritual poverty that Jesus speaks of has implications of its own. Jesus himself admits that a person with eyes to see could fail to perceive So in case there was still any doubt in the room, Jesus reads these prophetic words of Isaiah. He sits down, and as it says in verse 21, he makes the proclamation, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This word to fulfill literally means to fill a hollow place. So Jesus is implying that this synagogue, these four walls in which you've tried to fill them with empty law and tradition is hollow, But in this very moment, God in flesh stands before you, offering to breathe life into this otherwise lifeless synagogue. In verse 22, this is their response. It says that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words coming from his mouth. So somehow they they admired how he taught. You see, they liked what he said, but suddenly it dawned on them. And if you read on in verse 22, they ask the question, well, is this not Joseph's son? I mean, come on, they they knew Jesus. It was the hometown Nazareth boy. They watched this boy grow up. He was just a carpenter's son. See, for thousands of years, these devout Jewish people awaited the coming of the Messiah who now stood right before their eyes, yet somehow they missed it. It's crazy. We read this and somehow they managed to stuff Jesus into this box, writing him off as Joseph's son. And as crazy as that sounds to us, here's the reality. Just like these Pharisees, how many times have we managed to stuff Jesus into a box? You see, just like these religious people, you can marvel at his words and still resist his works. You can hear so much proclamation, yet experience so little transformation. Jesus can open his mouth all day long to speak without you ever opening up your heart to receive. So let's not miss it. This is the ultimate mission statement of Jesus Christ, man. He came to preach good news to the poor, to you and to me. He came to set the captive free. For those of you who've been locked in the dungeon of doubt and cynicism or shame and self-hatred. He came to bring healing to those hearts who've been crushed by the pain of loss and tragedy, by rejection and betrayal. 
He came to open up those eyes who've been blinded by religious arrogance or selfish pursuits. He came to set at liberty those of you who've been captive to the paralyzing power of sin and addiction, of resentment and bitterness. This is who our Messiah is. The one who stands proclaiming the message is ready to perform it. Isn't this miracle enough? Or has the roar of God so loved the world been muffled by religious routine and demanding schedules? I'm guilty. (laughs) You see, for many of us, the message has become so familiar that it's grown unfamiliar. Somehow you've managed to stuff Jesus Christ himself into a box where his rights are limited. Well, here's the good news for you and me, my friends. Jesus Christ will not allow himself to be confined in the box of your self-imposed limitations. So Jesus knows this church service is about to go south, which by the way, being a person from the south, does it offend you that we have an expression that when something's about to get ugly, we say it's about to go south? I was thinking about that. I'm like, I hope I don't offend anyone. But um, <laughs> yeah, I like that one. In, uh, in verse 24, Jesus says, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. You see, Jesus did not come to build our kingdom. He came to build his. Now, Jesus goes on in the text to remind them of the story of the prophet Elijah. Elijah being a great source of national pride for the Jew who during the days of a great famine in Israel bypassed all the Jewish widows in order to help a Gentile widow in Sidon. Now that doesn't really register to us, but to the Jew, it did not get any more offensive than this. Then Jesus goes on to tell of Elijah's successor, Elijah, who never helped out any of the Jewish lepers, but instead one Gentile leper from Syria. Okay, Jesus, well, what's your point? Here's the point. The gospel can blow right over your holy heads and go to whomever God pleases it to go. (laughs) See, at this point, this was outrageous. Jesus literally is about to start a riot, and I love it because he does it intentionally. But notice how quickly the applause and the adoration turns to anger and aggression. Read verse 29, now it says, And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. And you thought our church had drama. (laughs) But I read this and I ask, how did they get from, look how articulate this guy is to, let's throw this guy off a cliff. You see, for thousands of years, these Jews had been going through the motions. They had hidden themselves safely behind the law, convinced that their flawless religious behavior somehow was worthy of God's love, enough to set them apart as the religious elite of that day. But you see, in just an instant, Jesus radically interrupted their flow. Jesus now, on purpose, he gets in the way of their routine and turns their whole belief system upside down. (laughs) That's good stuff. You see, they, they didn't like this. 
This, this message of all-inclusive grace was a blow to the proud, exclusive mindset of the Pharisee. So they, they heard this and they rejected the diagnosis. They refused to change. They refused to repent. They refused to see themselves as utterly helpless in need of this type of savior. You see, from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, this hometown synagogue scene serves as a frightening foreshadow of what would take place on the cross. <laughs> Just as the apostle John depicts in John chapter one, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. P.S. They tried to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> but sadly, sadly, they preferred a God of their own manufacturing. A small-minded bookkeeper whose favor somehow could be earned by following the rule book. Blinded by their false sense of spirituality, they proceed to hang the Messiah. Then comes what I believe to be the most chilling verse of all. In verse 30, just as they're about to throw him off the cliff, it says this, don't miss it. But passing through their midst, he went away. The literal translation says he went his way. Now, Luke doesn't explain exactly how this happened. It could have been a miracle, but the point is, it wasn't yet Jesus' time to die. His hour had not yet come. But here's the question it led me to ask myself, and I want to ask you this morning. How many times has Jesus Christ himself passed right through our midst, yet somehow we missed it? You see, like the Pharisees, many of you have been going through the motions, you couldn't tell me the last time you missed a church service. I mean, you show up, you serve, and you give faithfully. I mean, you're definitely not as bad as most people, right? But at this point, your life seems to be comfortable. You like the routine you're in, which there's nothing wrong with that. But let me ask you this. When was the last time that you allowed Jesus Christ himself to radically interrupt your flow when was the last time that he really got in the way of your routine and turned everything upside down? See, don't miss the miracle right before our eyes this morning. God with us, God in us. This is not just another church service. But you see, we can all allow Jesus to pass right through our midst without ever really encountering him. For some of you, instead of sight, you choose the blindness. For some of you, instead of the freedom, you demand the chains. Let's be honest. Most of us prefer our own kingdom to his. So as I wrap this up this morning, I want to give you this thought to chew on. In what areas or what aspects of your life have you managed to stuff Jesus into a box? Think about this. The reality is, we're all guilty of this. I'm guilty of it. For some of you, if you think about it, you would say, well, you know what? I do trust Jesus, but when it comes to my finances or my job, or when it comes to my kids or our future, I'd better handle this one. Or think about it, I, I've been in church long enough to know that God can do all things. But when it comes to the hopelessness of this situation, or when it comes to this relationship, or even this marriage, 
when it comes to experiencing deliverance and inner healing in this area of my life, I better fix this one. Some of you have written Jesus off as a Sunday morning hobby, a last resort when all else fails, a get out of jail free card. But you see, when Jesus announces in the synagogue that today the scripture has been fulfilled, he leaves absolutely zero room for negotiation. So either Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. I'll be honest, especially as I've prepared this over these last few weeks, God has really challenged me. I've managed to stuff Jesus into a box. You know, I, I still struggle a lot with guilt and shame from my past. And if I'm going to be gut level honest with you, there's not a day that goes by that I don't struggle with at least one haunting memory from my past life. And if I'm not careful, if I don't dispute the lie with truth, then my mind's going to take me places I never really wanted to go again. But here's the reality of that. When I allow myself to be consumed with guilt and shame, I nullify the finished work of the cross. I struggle with fear and anxiety at times. There are times when my heart is gripped with fear over the unknown and uncertainty of the future, whatever. Y'all know how that goes. But you see, in those moments where I convince myself that my anxiety will always get the best of me, that I'll never be set free, I deny the power of the risen Christ. By doing this, I reject the Jesus of Luke chapter 4. I deny the Messiah of Isaiah 61, and like the Pharisees, I demand the chains. So as I wrap this thing up, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm still trying to figure this thing out. Hello, somebody. But here, here, here's the beauty. I'm thankful that no matter how hard I've tried to stuff Jesus into a box, he won't seem to settle within the walls of my self-imposed limitations. <laughs> so wherever you are in this journey, this verse, these scriptures have reassured me once again of one thing. The Christ who graces our midst is infinitely bigger than we have yet seen. He's immeasurably more able than we have yet experienced. He's forever worthier than we have yet risked. So Jesus, humble us as we close in this time, as, as Nick comes back up.